0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day dad, how are you doing today? Good thanks Rowan, good to be with you again. Good to be with you as always, now... I'm excited for today's episode, which we've called Seeking a Suitable Psychologist. So Dad, I suppose in the interests of staying in our lane a little bit, we will have a bit of a focus on psychology just with the background that we've both had, but we certainly wouldn't want to discourage anyone from seeking help from another mental health professional and many of the things that we touch on today will also be relevant to other mental health professionals as well. But Dad, do you want to just give us a bit of a rundown
1: first of all? What are we going to be having a chat about today? Well it's one of those practical kind of things. If someone feels that they could do with some extra help because of any kind of mental health problems or distress then part of the question becomes well how do you find a suitable person to see? How do you find a good fit for you? And so there are a number of practical things that we'll be discussing today that might be helpful as a guide.
0: Well it's interesting I think we've seen a bit of a change in the field of psychology over the last couple of decades. I'm sure you'd be able to speak a lot more to this than I would, but I suppose in seeing the stigma change around mental health, have you seen a change in some of the reasons
1: why people would go and seek help from a psychologist? Yes, well I suppose to some extent still the main reasons people seek a psychologist is because of experiencing significant distress in an area of their life and it might be symptoms or mood or relationship problems or problem with addiction or something like that, that still would be the most common reason why people would certainly see a clinical or counselling psychologist, I would suggest. But um, by the same token, sometimes people will see a psychologist for a tweak in some way. If they're facing a challenge in some area of life, they might have gone through a period where they are feeling a bit burnt out and they might already be getting on top of that a bit but still want to reflect on what happened and find ways of consolidating positive shifts for the future so sometimes people present with if you like more mild difficulties than they might have in the past but I think the key thing as you're suggesting is that the stigma has changed greatly and why do you think that is well I think it used to be such a big deal for someone to see a psychologist like when I started 40 years ago It was a major thing for someone to put up their hand and say, look, I'm struggling to the point where I feel overwhelmed. I don't feel equipped to deal with these problems myself at the moment. It's getting a bit beyond me. There was the notion as though someone must be a bit weak-minded or a real problem with them or they shouldn't have been in that position or there might have been almost something shameful about that, even to the point where if I saw a client in the street... I developed good peripheral vision because I wanted to get a sense of whether they would acknowledge me first before I might even nod or acknowledge them or whether they would rather be completely incognito, so to speak. And many people preferred clearly to have no acknowledgement in that situation whatsoever. So there was a degree of shame as though, oh, I shouldn't be in this position. I've stuffed up to have to go and put up my hand and cross this line, cross this threshold to say I'm someone who needs some kind of external assistance for my mental health.
0: And it's something that we've spoken about a little bit on the podcast before in terms of the way that I suppose resilience and strength, mental strength has been redefined in many ways in recent years, in many ways away from that, I suppose, stoic idea of the idea of mental strength being not showing any weakness, not showing any emotion. Why do you think we've moved away from some of those stereotypes?
1: Well I think that we have a more enlightened approach overall and I think also life has become more complex in different ways which means that more people are going to be facing major adjustments and change and any change even positive change can be stressful and so I think that people realise now that we don't expect to go through an entire lifetime without having any kinds of mental health problems just like we don't expect to go through an entire lifetime without having any physical health problems. It's understandable that sometimes things will happen that lead us to experience a certain level of illness. Well, if we face trauma or loss or massive adjustment and challenge, even the challenge that comes with COVID-19, where many people have presented for help for the first time this year, just showing that when untoward circumstances happen, many people will be Impacted to the point where they're feeling they're really struggling and they feel they could do with something beyond their usual resources. So these days we accept that maybe it's a somewhat enlightened approach if a person is really struggling, which will be understandable at times in certain circumstances, to seek some kind of external help. So that's where people might say, Look, I go and see an accountant for a financial problem, I might as well see a psychologist if I have some level of mental distress. It's been
0: very interesting recently watching The Sopranos is how I've spent a lot of the lockdown and it's a brilliant show in terms of the psychology aspect of it. And one thing that I found fascinating is that it was filmed in many ways at the end of that era where we saw mental strength as mainly stoicism and that sort of thing and it's interesting throughout the show to see some of this transition occur in some of the characters and one thing that's really struck out to me is that the way of thinking that occurred before this enlightened shift that you're referring to, it seemed to be that The gamble almost was that you were in control of your mental health until you weren't, and then you lost control in a big way. And I only recently heard the term for the first time, decompensate, which is a very psychological term, but I believe it means to essentially get to that point where you lose control mentally and you lose control of your mental health. So it seems to me that this more enlightened approach and this more enlightened way of thinking potentially sets some. stronger foundations potentially in place that allow us to manage our mental
1: health rather than just drop off the cliff in that way? Yes, well, I think that there's a lot in what you're saying about that emphasis before on stoic attitudes and this idea of control, like you're in control or you're not, as you describe, which is actually quite a rigid and black and white way of, of looking at things. But yes, the notion tended to be that mental health, having good mental health meant being in control. Now we know that there are a number of quite specific difficulties with these stoic kind of attitudes. When people are in stoic professions, like, say, police, or it could be soldiers, or it could be prison officers, in environments where people are expected to be in control, or there was that stoic culture, then if people faced a traumatic event, they tended to fare worse. If they expected themselves to be somewhat invulnerable, or like supermen, or like very stoic. And so you would see that it was the people who are most vulnerable to trauma, either the people who think, oh, I can't handle it, if anything bad happens, I'll go to water. So feeling, I'm so vulnerable, or the people who think, this won't affect me, I'm above this, I should be strong, I should be in control. Those people are actually more susceptible to even more severe impact in the face of trauma because it tends to lead to a non-acceptance of difficulty. Whereas a greater form of strength and resilience is being like bamboo, being able to bend a bit, recognising that things can impact on you in a certain way. You're not immune to them, they will have an impact, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to break, so to speak. And so having a bit of give, allowing for a degree of vulnerability, recognising that we can all be impacted... By distressing events and it will potentially lead us to feel somewhat out of control for a period of time but that doesn't have to be the be all and end all. Sometimes we might go out of control for a period of time and then get back in control later on having learnt something from the process and these days many people would consider that seeing a therapist might help them negotiate or work through that process.
0: And look, it's the sort of thing as well that we certainly don't want to underplay the value of Stoicism at certain times, particularly at the moment. There can be real value in, you know, dusting yourself off and just getting on with it and getting to that point where you can maybe address things a little bit more fully. But I think there can be real value in, I almost think of it in terms of planting your flag at rock bottom, in terms of sort of saying to yourself hold on, actually, you know, I'm not actually feeling great. And why is that? Well, this is the reason why. And once you sort of admit that to yourself, it becomes tangible in terms of the way up from there, in terms of if you sort of say, look actually, you know, this is as bad a day as I've had in a really long time. Well, that gets to the point where you kind of plant your flag there and sort of say, well, is tomorrow going to be a worse day or is it going to be a better day? Well, what are the contributing factors to making it such a bad day? And it almost just contextualises everything in terms of, this is the bottom of things, let's get out of here. Whereas I think if you just almost say to yourself the whole time, that actually, you know, know, I'm better than I am, I'm better than I am. Well, it's that thing where you get to that point, well, until you're not. And then the repercussions and consequences of that can be much bigger than if you just admitted to
1: yourself earlier on. Yes, I think there's a key thing that you're highlighting here about the benefit of some kind of awareness or acceptance of struggle. And actually, like you say, there can be something said for a Stoic approach in terms of looking to bear with difficulty without an emphasis on one's emotions. Like a person can know that they're feeling distressed... And know that they're really struggling in a certain way or realise they're in a difficult situation and yet be focusing on what they're doing at the time and looking to take some of the emotion out of it. That can actually be a very helpful coping strategy in difficult situations. I use the term taking some of the emotion out of it or dialing down the emotion. But you can still be aware of the emotion being there. And that's when it can also overlap with self-compassion. So self-compassion has those three elements to it. One element is, I'm having a really difficult time here. The second thing is accepting that. Well, this is because of common humanity. I'm a human being, and that's fair enough. And the third thing, looking to do something to help improve the situation or bear with it. Now, sometimes the bearing with it will be to look to focus on some kind of active problem-solving approach or looking to tackle a task in a certain way or drawing on assistance in a certain kind of way, but putting the emotion to one side, yet still being aware of it, not trying to think, well, I shouldn't be vulnerable, I shouldn't be feeling bad in any way, I should be in control and on top of this. And so I think that's where what you're describing shows that there can be more subtle and complex ways that we deal with things we can sometimes acknowledge emotions without having to over-focus on them when we're going through a difficult period of time. But I think ultimately it's that insight, awareness and acceptance that is the key.
0: And so in that case then, when should someone see a psychologist? Because I imagine the balance for all of us in terms of getting on with it and addressing some of these feelings is going to be slightly different for all of us, partly because of the environment and situation that we're in and all that sort of thing. So at what point should someone consider it for themselves to go along and seek therapy?
1: Well, in a sense, there's not going to be an absolute right and wrong, but in the first instance, what I would suggest is if someone feels quite stuck and quite overwhelmed... And they've felt that way for a period of time. They might have looked to draw on other kind of resources. They might have tried to think through what might be most helpful. They might have looked to discuss something with a family member or a friend. Sometimes that kind of support might not be available or it might be about a more confidential issue that someone doesn't want to discuss with someone else. But broadly, people are going to first look to draw on their own resources at the time. And I think it's more if people are starting to feel more overwhelmed or stuck with it or noticing that there are building difficulties. It might be disruptions to sleep or concentration or feeling more irritable or one's functioning to the point where relationships might be impacted upon. People might notice certain habits worsening, it might be the use of alcohol and drugs increasing, it might be not feeling their usual self for a period of time. Basically, I'd go back to what we've talked about in the past in terms of your stress signature. Once you recognise that you're getting to more moderate or severe levels of distress and you're trying different things to improve the situation and you're not getting some ready response to that, well, then I think that when people recognise that they're feeling a bit stuck or somewhat overwhelmed and their usual ways aren't working so well, then I think often it is worth looking to seek some kind of help sooner rather than later when it's a more mild difficulty so to speak rather than trying to be over stoic soldier on think i shouldn't be having this kind of problem and that's where people used to run into more difficulties they'd go too long before they would seek help
0: and so now let's get into some of the practicalities of how you would find a mental health professional so dad where
1: do we start well i think always a good starting point is one's gp So our general medical practitioners, they have a central role within our whole health system and they're going to tend to know a range of providers around, but also hopefully they know us and our own health, physical health generally as well to some extent. It's a big advantage if someone does have a regular GP. These days many people don't, but most people are going to have, say, a GP clinic that they're familiar with or that they look to go to, and seeing a local GP I think is always a very good start. There are other things that can add to that. I think certainly word of mouth. Maybe you know of a friend or work colleague or family member who might have seen someone and you might get some feedback on who they saw or a service that they attended and that might make some kind of difference. I think even looking up websites, you can Google psychologist at your local area or another mental health professional for that matter and see what comes up that way. You'll tend to get a fair bit of an idea of a service from their website. They'll tend to say something about their values or priorities and services that they offer. That can give you a sense as well. And I particularly think that if you get a recommendation or an indication, sometimes from even more than one source, you might hear a couple of people recommend someone or a certain place, or you might hear of a recommendation For a couple of different people and you check out a couple of different websites and you might get a sense of something suiting you a little bit more. So I think that there can be a degree of subjectivity in that but some of that can be good because what appeals to you about the way a service is presented is likely to say something about that service and also a possible match for yourself.
0: And, of course, the other thing about starting with a GP as well is that a GP can give you access to the Medicare system for psychology as well that we have in Australia. So do you want to just give a bit of a brief overview about the Better Access system?
1: Yes, well, the Better Access scheme started around about 15 years ago and it's been a mainstay of mental health services, certainly in terms of private services in Australia. And so when people are referred by a GP they are now eligible for up to 20 sessions a year. It used to be 10 sessions a year, but it's been very recently increased to 20. And also, over the next couple of years, it can include telehealth or video or Zoom sessions. So this has made psychological sessions much more accessible for a wide range of people and it shows the confidence shown in that scheme and I'm glad that we've been able to provide a lot of evidence over the last 10-15 years about the effectiveness of that scheme which has been recognised by governments and by others and I can say from that data that on average people would tend to present for about 8 or so sessions on average. So some people might just see a psychologist for a few sessions but there are people with more complex or severe difficulties who might present for more like 20 sessions or so and now that's much more accessible, that ongoing therapy.
0: Well, it's a great system that we have in Australia, the better access system. I remember living with friends from overseas and they were just blown away by the access that we had to psychology provided by the government. So I think it's certainly something that's not to be undervalued in that sense because there's a lot of other countries that don't necessarily have the same thing. And it's interesting, I was reading something, I believe in the Lancet Psychiatry Journal from 2016 was basically saying that for every $1 spent on mental health, you get $4 return on investment in terms of the economy so i think particularly at times like the moment when government spending is as scrutinized as ever it just seems to be an absolute gimme and it seems to me from the data that we've got at the practice and even just from speaking to you and other people dad that the system that we
1: have in australia is just about as good as any Yes, I think we are very fortunate that way and it's part of a wider mental health system of course as well. There's public mental health, there's headspace, there's a range of different services that people can access but certainly these days many people access the better access system. When it came out around about 2006, the end of 2006, I think the government was thinking it might be around about one in 100 people using this system or a little bit more. But very quickly, it was one in 30 people. Now, that meant that the scheme was costing the government more than they anticipated. And at first, this seemed like something of a problem, the extra cost, but then it was thought, wait a minute, but it's living up to its name. Better access, more people are accessing it. Within two to three years, one in 20 Australians were accessing that service. And these days, I think it's up to about one in ten. Now, we could think, well, does this mean that something is blowing out and more people are accessing a service than needed? I think that's where that statistic that you mentioned is very relevant about the return of being a $4 return on a $1 investment. Well, I think that comes back to the impact of mental health problems on people's functioning. One thing is that we might experience distress, if we're experiencing some kind of mental health problem. So we might experience poor sleep, we might experience headaches or irritability or it's disrupting our concentration in certain ways. But that also means it's going to be affecting our functioning. It's going to be affecting our functioning at work. It's going to be affecting our productivity. It's going to be affecting our efficiency with study. It might be affecting our interactions with others and how we can involve ourselves in teamwork and things like that. It might also affect absenteeism. So when it boils down to it, if something reliably improves our functioning, then it's likely to have significant economic benefits as well.
0: There's a brilliant French movie, which I believe it's called La N a Tire La N, which loosely translates to hatred breeds hatred. And it's a very interesting thing, I've been thinking about this a little bit and it's the sort of thing that I think if you think about the sum of all of the positivity, for example, that comes out of people seeking help and getting help, Well, if you think of the inverse of that in terms of those people not getting that help if you think of the knock-on effect of the exponential amount of negativity that is going to be out there if people don't seek help and, for example, pass on their frustration or resentment onto someone who's close to them and and they may do the same thing and you just get this sort of knock-on effect. So I think one of the great values of the Better Access Scheme is that if we look, for example, at the reason why we're social distancing at the moment during the pandemic, well, in many ways, seeking therapeutic help for a mental health difficulty is kind of like social distancing from your negativity. It's social distancing your negativity from others in that sort of way. So, like I just look at something like this and you just think, how many people have benefited and what's the knock-on benefit from that being? So, it seems to me an absolute no-brainer that we do spend the money on it. And I suppose just quietly, it's interesting that uh, we listen to the World Health Organization who, for example, back up this research and... And advocate for this research, we we'll listen to them very closely about physical health, but maybe we have a little way to go in terms of listening to them
1: about mental health in this sense. Yes, I think that's a very important issue, like the ripple effects of distress... On others around. And so it's a real challenge for people who experience mental health problems, but also for those around them. And what you're describing, it reminds me of having worked with many war veterans many years ago, especially at the Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital. And this was in the days where I was involved in this as well, getting the first post traumatic stress disorder programs going. And one of the reasons why we did this is we got a sense that there were many, many war veterans who at that stage had had about 25 years of chronic problems with PTSD, they tended to be very disconnected from other people, including their families. They tended to have difficulties with depression, with anger reactions, with alcohol abuse. And in a sense, they were trying to manage their demons within themselves. They are actually often trying to protect those around them from the distress that they experienced. However... It was spilling out in other ways anyway and some of the greatest distress that their family members had was from feeling that they had, say, a a father or a husband who was really struggling in certain kind of ways but having great difficulty acknowledging it or dealing with it in any way and in those days they were more limited, the services, and then they did massively expand also the funding for the treatment of war veterans And that partly led to something in the Phoenix Institute, which deals with post-traumatic mental health. And there was a lot of development for mental health services for war veterans and their partners often as well. So... One thing that struck me at the time is how much difference that made, not only to those individuals who were suffering, but also to their families who in some ways were suffering with them. And so I think that's where it's important to look at mental health funding generally being that much less than equivalent physical health funding. And I know that the government is taking on that message far more in the era of covid and responding with different initiatives in different kind of ways. And I think that's very welcome because, as you pointed out, it affects so much the individual's well being to have access to appropriate services and their families and also the economy. And I will just point out quickly we'll have a little bit of a chat about it
0: later but next week we'll actually do a podcast episode basically on this subject in terms of helping friends and family seek therapy so uh, as a bit of a follow-up today uh, we'll have a bit more of an individual focus today and then next week uh, a bit more of a focus on on helping those that we care about seek help but dad let's maybe just cross off just a few more of the practicalities in terms of the other thing that we're very lucky about in Australia is the access to emergency services and emergency numbers as well. I know Lifeline do a, a great service and 131114 is their number. Uh, but I believe they've actually got a video service now as well, don't they, recently? So I think it just shows the extent to which the government is starting to think
1: about how they can support mental health. Yes, and as yourself, it was only today that I learned about that video service with Lifeline. But that is a wonderful service and it's something that people can turn to at any time at all day night around any kind of challenge or issue and so it makes a big difference to other mental health services that operate to know that lifeline is there And we'll put up a
0: number of emergency numbers that can be used at times when that more immediate assistance is needed. Uh, We'll put those on the podcast page for today. And we'll also put up a range of the services and directories for psychologists that dad mentioned a little bit earlier. But dad, just before we move on, is there any other information that people should consider when looking at the practicalities of seeking a psychologist?
1: Yes, well, we're going to talk about some things about the therapist and therapy relationship themselves that are relevant, but they're also those practical kind of things like location – what might be accessible. And these days there are a few more options with telehealth so people can be accessible more remotely, but particularly one's locality, what services are available. Availability in terms of hours or waiting lists, things like that, of course that's going to be relevant. Now fees are going to be relevant as well because with the Better Access Scheme the government provides a rebate but many services will charge an additional gap, although there will be some that don't. And then it might be hours as well in terms of accessibility of whether it be weekend or after hours appointments, that might be important for some people as well. So there are going to be practicalities that sometimes mean that some therapists will be available whereas others might not be so much and so it might be important to take those practicalities into account and if it makes a big difference to someone to access a service in a particular time or in a particular way well that's part of the practicality and it might be important to be able to see someone under circumstances that suits rather than being extra specific around for example a therapist's age or gender or something like that.
0: And so now, once we've gotten to the point, we may have a couple of alternatives in terms of they're suitable for the practicalities of things. What are some of the other things that we need to think about in terms of what are some of the aspects that come
1: into choosing our psychologist? Okay, now... There's certainly some evidence about this, about what makes the biggest difference. And so someone like myself who undertook quite a degree of training and and others who have a particular background or therapy approach might think, oh, it's the particular training or therapy approach or whatever that counts the most. However, we know what most counts is the quality of the relationship. It's the relationship between the client and the therapist. And so that might be different for one person or another. It's not as if the same therapist is going to be the best person for any particular individual. It will vary, but it'll come down to the quality of the relationship is the key. And so what are the elements of a good relationship in terms of how am
0: I able to tell? Because I imagine it's not necessarily someone who you want to just empower you to do whatever you want you want that sort of challenge in some regards but you also don't necessarily want to just completely be challenged at the same time as that I heard one time the AFL coach Ross Lyon talk about the idea that for the younger players the idea of coaching is to fundamentally support and challenge
1: and I wonder if that maybe comes in a little bit to it here Oh, I think that's a very good combination, the notion of support and challenge, I would agree with that. But I suppose I might first mention maybe an overview of some things that might be influencing a match, so maybe some of the more surface characteristics. Some people will prefer to see a psychologist of a similar age, or maybe even a different age, often a similar gender, sometimes people prefer a different gender as well. Maybe people prefer a similar temperament in some way or they respond to someone's personality with maybe having more energy or expressing things with less energy than another. There are going to be some of these things which are almost surface differences, if you like, that you can tell pretty quickly whether someone's a certain age, gender, that kind of thing. But that's going to be relevant for a number of people of feeling most comfortable or willing to enter a therapy relationship. So that's relevant in some sense. But I think more broadly, there are some general characteristics of an optimal therapist and an optimal therapy relationship that relate to the quality of the interaction. And the first thing I would describe is that the client experiences it as a positive relationship. Now, what's that going to mean? I think partly what you're mentioning about being supportive, well, there'll be a sense of that, but partly through the therapist appearing open, non-judgmental, And a very good listener. like That helps set the scene for trust. A place where people can feel comfortable, where they can bring up whatever is relevant to them, whatever they wish to bring up, and be confident that they will be heard and not judged for that. So that's sometimes referred to as unconditional positive regard, an expression by Carl Rogers, a very famous psychotherapist of last century. And when people experience that unconditional positive regard... Naturally, will be much more safe and inclined to be open oneself and inclined to be honest with oneself because of not feeling so judged. So, I think that's the kind of notion of a safe, trusted kind of setting because that will help deepen the kind of conversation and what kind of issues will come up.
0: One phrase that I heard one time which really resonated with me in terms of looking at the idea of support and comes down to that boxing idea of whether someone's in your corner or not. And it seems to me that idea of unconditional positive regard, in some ways it just kind of contextualises the psychologist to kind of always be in your corner in that sort of sense. They may challenge you on things, but overall, in good faith, they want the best for you.
1: Yes the wanting the best for you I think is the essential thing there because one thing I'll slightly qualify with that like I agree with you that there's that sense of support the person wanting the best for you but also I think optimally a therapist is also not going to be overly invested on how the person is faring at any particular point in time. So at times it's appropriate for a therapist to be a cheerleader of sorts and to be very actively encouraging and all the rest of it but Also, in terms of psychotherapy training, therapists are often taught to watch out for not being too invested for how things seem to be going at any particular point in time because otherwise the therapist could be more vulnerable to what we call a rescuing pattern rather than a helping pattern. I think an optimal therapist will be very interested in helping someone but not have a sense of anxiety or urgency of having to take responsibility to fix the other person so to speak that can actually often interfere with things in certain ways and it might mean also that the therapist is less likely to engage in some kind of judicious challenging that you were describing earlier because I think some level of challenging often does help bring out the best in us but so long as it's done with the helpful kind of motives and with that positive regard and respect for us
0: and so what is the balance then between i suppose the positivity side of things and the challenging side of things that we mentioned before you mentioned the notion of sort of being a cheerleader for someone well when would for example it not be appropriate to be a cheerleader for someone
1: Okay well that gets into more of a subtle point in a way I think because I would tend to be more of a cheerleader for someone when I feel that they could do with more direct energy to encourage them in a certain way. For example sometimes people are in very difficult situations there's not any kind of easy solution to it. They might be facing wicked problems or they might be facing very long-term challenges where it's very difficult to keep on going that's the time when I would tend to have a bit more of that cheerleading approach whereas sometimes if people are looking at tweaking an aspect of their behavior or looking to deal with challenges that might be maybe not so overwhelming or that they're already showing a lot of progress in then as a therapist might tend to have a somewhat more muted kind of approach and reflective and just observing what you're seeing, kind of thing, or maybe very little bit of judicious advice might come in in some ways, but when it boils down to it, might not need to be too, dare I say, exuberant in looking to support people in a certain kind of direction. And so there's a kind of match for the particular situation, but again, still there's this unconditional positive regard, and underneath support for the person's well-being in the direction that suits them
0: and so how hands-on is it for lack of a better term in terms of are you sort of instructing people ways of thinking and ways of processing things or is it very much i suppose led by the client in that sort of sense in terms of your working with their existing attitudes
1: yes i think that's a good core question about the nature of the interaction i think it's best if it's collaborative And by collaborative, now clearly the therapist is in the driver's seat, so to speak, in terms of how to lead off conversations or how to make a start in whatever way. However, the best therapy will be very much engaging the client in drawing out their strengths and resources. So I would say that the most constructive therapy relationships will be ones that are collaborative, where the therapist is actively looking for and drawing on the client's strengths and their own resources. It's not one where the therapist is asserting this kind of authority and the client should just listen to them in any way and the client should just passively accept what the therapist is saying. It's worked out together. And the thing that I've noticed as a therapist, the more experience I've had, the more I look to influence people, if you like, with my ears. In other words you're looking to pick up from the person the deeper kind of messages and interests that they have and the kind of challenges that they might be facing but it's in the way that you listen to the person process things and what you attend to that helps guide the therapy in directions that might be most fruitful but there's also this checking back and forth, a frequent checking back and forth about whether that seems helpful or on the right track or how did that work or how things gone when they applied this different approach? Along those lines, it's very, very collaborative. It's very two-way. And the other aspect that it seems to me about that
0: thing of they're taking two to tango, for lack of a better term, in some ways, but I imagine there would potentially be times when if someone isn't necessarily as ready to progress out of a certain situation... Do people ever have that feeling of like, well, you know, why didn't you cure me or of, You know, you should have cured me in
1: that sense. Yes, well, I suppose, again, it comes back to the collaboration and listening. Like as a therapist, you sometimes pick up on how ambivalent someone might be about change. They might say that they want a certain kind of change, but other things that they're saying or doing suggest that they don't want to go in that direction. For example, that they might say that they want to quit marijuana or alcohol or whatever, yet their behaviour and other things that they say shows that they draw heavily on that, whether it be for self-medicating or in their social groups or just in other ways they show an ambivalence about it so again in that situation what is often helpful is having an open and direct and non-judgmental discussion about maybe what the person is ready for whether if they do make that change for example quitting using a substance whether there are other things that they would find more difficult whether it be in their sleep or socializing or or even changing another kind of behaviour that still has some kind of payoff, even though the person says that they don't want to engage in it anymore.
0: And so I imagine it's not necessarily just the personality of a psychologist which is going to make the difference. We're not necessarily looking for a friend
1: in this situation. So what are some of the other aspects to consider? Yes, well, it is going to partly get back to the knowledge base of the mental health professional and their specialised knowledge, if you like, or the areas that they tend to focus on and have expertise in. And these are the things that are actually emphasised in people's mental health training as though these are the most important things rather than the quality of the relationship. So after highlighting that it's the relationship that it's the key, well, yes, of course, it can also be some difference whether people are well-versed in a certain kind of treatment or addressing a certain kind of problem and this will vary according to our background of course because there are different types of mental health professionals and our training will emphasise the importance of different kinds of knowledge. And so what are some of the different types of mental
0: health professionals because obviously we've got a bit of a focus on psychology as we mentioned with our background but it's not just a psychologist that you could see to seek help for mental
1: health is it? Exactly. And that's where the main question used to be, what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Because they were the main recognised mental health professions, just for the general public, if you like. And so then we would tend to highlight that psychiatrists are medical doctors first. So that means that they'll have training in medical interventions and tend to draw on medical treatments such as medication. But psychiatrists can also be excellent therapists. People will vary in how much therapy training that they will have had, and psychiatrists will also be engaging in talking therapies with their clients and have different approaches that way. But certainly that's one of the main differences. Psychiatrists have medical training. Psychologist training has a strong emphasis of all things on statistics and research methods, is a core aspect of all psychology courses, but also psychological strategies around things like changing habits so looking at things like habits thinking and often with a an emphasis on talking therapies that can help bring about change in thoughts feelings and behavior so that's one of the main differences that if someone looks for a review of medication for example you can't do better than seeing a psychiatrist whereas a psychologist generally does not have formal training in that area and certainly can't prescribe medication but beyond that they're also social workers who often have extensive training in understanding social systems and they might have a particular background that helps with, for example, family therapy or relationship therapy or community-based approaches. And then there can be a wider range of counsellors who have quite generic kind of backgrounds. And so if people describe themselves as counsellors, they might have anything from minimal to years of training. It's not a very well-regulated term, so to speak. So that's where people might need to do a bit of extra homework to find out more about people's background and expertise. There are also occupational therapists who are often very good at applying practical ways of assisting people to manage with mental health problems and often have very helpful group therapy kind of experience as well but it's going to depend on the individual within each of these professions as well so there's some of the broad differences but there'll be a lot of variation in how people practice within each of those professions as well. And just to pick up on that point, looking at psychology, for example, you can
0: almost go deeper in the field in terms of there's different types of psychologists as well. So you mentioned a couple of different therapy types there in terms of family therapy or relationship therapy or community-based services in that sense. So what are the different types of therapy? Because different psychologists will have a different therapy approach as well, won't they? Like we've spoken a little bit about CBT on the podcast before.
1: Is that your main approach and how is that different to some of the others? Yes, at its heart, CBT is my main approach. And CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy means that you look to impact on people's thinking patterns or cognitions and their personal experiences and habits to help alter their feelings and behavior. So, in other words, when people come and see a psychologist because they feel bad, because they're depressed or anxious, a CBT therapist looks to pick up on the attitudes and patterns of thinking behind that, including negative thoughts, feelings of helplessness for depression, perception of danger and threat for anxiety, and look at particular ways that might influence those thinking patterns based on personal experience, sometimes even setting up homework exercises or activities or things that people can do to test those underlying beliefs. But whereas I say I'm mainly a CBT therapist, which many clinical psychologists are in Australia, so clinical psychology is the specialty which focuses very particularly on mental health difficulties like anxiety, depression, trauma reactions, and most clinical psychologists in Australia were trained in CBT. But for my formal training, I chose a psychodynamic stream which is a prominent stream say in Europe and also historically following on from Freud also Jung was another psychodynamic practitioner and so you know people would know my interest in synchronicity I have an interest in Carl Jung as well where you also look at the interpretation of dreams or imagery so actually myself like many other therapists will often look beyond just the main approach that you were trained in and look to integrate or incorporate other things. For example, there's also gestalt therapy, which might focus on feelings in certain ways and even incorporate some psychodrama or two-chair work where someone might act out two different parts of themselves by sitting in one chair and engaging in a conversation with another part of themselves, so to speak. But those methods also to some extent are incorporated these days within CBT because different parts of each of these fields influences the other. There's also family therapy and it will tend to be social workers who've had a greater emphasis in their training in that area but also quite a number of psychiatrists and psychologists might have specialised in that area as well. Another field is called interpersonal therapy where particularly you're looking at relationships between people. So I'd say also counselling psychologists, another specialty of psychology, they'll often be exposed to a range of these therapy approaches and individual counselling psychologists might have one favourite approach relative to another. And then the other specialties would include sports psychology or organisational psychology where they might draw on various types of these approaches but whether people might be a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker, there are choices that people make through their career about which types of therapy approaches, CBT, psychodynamic, family, that might suit them further and people often specialise further in one particular area but sometimes adding on understanding from other areas to look to blend or round out one's strategy so to speak.
0: And so is it the case that different therapy types are recommended for different initial problems that someone would be coming in for? For example, if someone was coming in with trauma reactions, would they be almost prescribed one type of therapy, whereas someone coming in for, for example, eating disorders might be prescribed another? Or is it a little bit less specific to the initial
1: problem that way? Now, a bit of both, because there's evidence that certainly supports some interventions, especially strongly, but there's also some evidence that other interventions can help sometimes, and so it can come back to clinician's preference or what the client is most interested to seek out, for example. So that's one of the tricky things with mental health services and interventions. They are more varied and complex than, for example, what might be medical interventions for hypertension or a particular illness, so to speak. But to give some kind of example, say for trauma... Now, I'm a CBT therapist, so I'm going to have a bent towards that kind of area, but there's a whole lot of research that if people are going to help a client who's had a post-traumatic stress disorder, severe distress following on from an assault or a car accident, they're having nightmares, maybe feeling numbed, uh, a lot more anxiety kind of symptoms coming up with that, then we know that many people will benefit from having what's called exposure therapy. And that means that the person is guided to relive certain kinds of painful memories, but in situations in a way that can help diffuse their impact. And so that's quite a specialized area of interventions that I think it really helps when people have significant trauma reactions to see a therapist who's got some background in exposure therapy but there again even though I use that a lot there'd be a third of trauma clients that I see that I would not use that exposure therapy for because either it might seem it's not necessary after we use some other techniques and initial psychoeducation about their problems and a few other kind of things and there would be some other people where it would be too overwhelming to use that approach So even then, it's not as if there's one kind of method that applies to each person. But let's take another example. Just say if someone has protracted depression, it's severe, it's complicated in different ways, the person's been trying to do what they can to make improvements, but they feel really stuck, they've been stuck for quite a time with depression, might have low energy disruptions in sleep, then I think it can be very important that people see a psychiatrist because a psychiatrist is going to be the specialist with medication and they'll have heard lots of feedback with different people, with different types of medications, and they're likely to be able to make a more informed choice. So a GP will be very helpful in many situations, but when something's very complicated, then I think it's a real advantage to be able to see the most specialised mental health professional in that area, say a psychiatrist. Then if it comes to relationship difficulties then I think often it's a benefit for people to be able to consider not just seeing an individual therapist. It might be very helpful to see someone with their partner, if their partner's ready for that themselves, and then you want someone who's got experience with couples counselling or relationship counselling and family therapy. So there are times when I think the therapy method will make quite a difference. And then, say, with addictions as well, you want to have... Maybe a combination of mental health professionals with addictions, you want to have a medical health professional that understands about addictions and also alternative kind of medication that might help people let go of a particular substance, but also you want to have people who understand a lot about behavioural urges and patterns and what kind of things can reinforce habits of addiction. And there'll be some situations where we'll also be able to help To have a therapist who's got a family or relationship focus with addictions because the person might have developed their addiction in the context of relationship difficulties. So at times it'll be a combination that will prove to be optimal, but there are also times where people will be, well, dare I say, making the most of what accessible alternative that they have. We don't always have to be in a position to be able to see three different professionals who've got specialised knowledge in a certain kind of area, again, the quality of the relationship will still be the key and maybe the person being clear on what they're working on and ready to make that change.
0: guess one thing I've wondered about this, and it's interesting hearing you talk about addictions there for that example because I think that's a good example to use. To what degree in therapy do we address the behaviour that someone is having an issue with or do we address the motivating factors behind that behaviour? Because if we take an addiction, for example, it's the behaviour of partaking in substance abuse that is the addiction itself, but potentially there's some motivating factors behind that which are causing the person enough distress to find themselves in an addictive state in the first place. So... When someone comes to see a psychologist, are you looking to address the, I suppose, underlying problems that are leading to distress and maybe manifesting itself in a range of ways? Or are you looking more to address the Behaviors in terms of whether it be anger or whether it be that someone's behaving antisocially, are you looking to stop them behaving antisocially or are you looking to stop them having the motivation to behave in that way?
1: Yes, well, again, a, a good question. It's going to depend partly also on what a client requests when they first come in, what the emphasis on it might be. But just say if someone is looking to reduce their use of alcohol, for example. I think in the first instance, we're going to consider motivation in terms of the person's readiness to change. So at first, we're going to look at their reasons for looking to reduce their alcohol and also reasons why they might want to continue with it. So we don't ignore that side. So we might have some exploration of that. But soon enough, like certainly what my tendency would be and many psychologists' tendency would be, would be to start off somewhere with what kind of change the person is ready to make because the person might already have done some things to look to cut down the use of alcohol, or they might have thought of being about to do something to cut down the use of alcohol. And I think in the first instance, you might start off there looking to change the behaviour more directly. Like they're coming along to see a mental health professional, they're a little bit motivated to at least that extent. And so at first it might be looking to invite the person to look to reduce their alcohol use to a certain amount. Now what will typically happen as the person looks to put that into practice is they'll come across certain obstacles if you like to cutting back and that will make clear or a little bit more clear what some of the underlying motivations might be. Like for example the person might try to cut back and they might find that they're feeling stressed when they're cutting back and they're not using that usual way. They might have used Alcohol, as many people do, is a form of self-medication. About 8 out of 10 people who abuse alcohol are using it like self-medication to deal with anxiety or stress. And so then it might become clear that the person needs to develop other stress management techniques in order to make further progress. So we could start off, in a sense, assuming that the person just needs that stress management strategy, and it might be worthwhile including anyway... But I think often how therapy proceeds is it's a little bit of both. You start looking at changing a behaviour that the person says that they want to change or go in a different direction and then you find the obstacles to that and then you find that there are other motivations behind that and gradually you can kind of peel back some of the layers, if you like, of what might be influencing people's behaviour. Like they might have underlying unresolved grief or depression that might have been holding them back. The person might have avoidant tendencies that we've talked about before that lead them to be really fearful of maybe asserting themselves in certain situations. And so that's leading to their anger and stress being more pent up. It tends to be that As you look to make shifts in behaviours more directly, it helps bring up some of the underlying patterns, but I think that many therapists like myself will also be exploring some of those potential background patterns or motivations or influences in the early sessions of assessment. So you look at a bit of both.
0: And so how then can you tell if therapy is going well in that sense? Because let's take, for example, someone who may be displaying behaviours of addiction and they come in to see you and in the first few sessions they recognise that there are some underlying patterns that are leading to that and they look to address those underlying patterns. Well, that could be potentially, as you were saying before with exposure therapy, that could be potentially very distressing. So potentially someone could come out of a session and could feel, on the surface of it, quite depressed in many ways, but at the same time, on another level, that could represent progress. So
1: how do you gauge what is progress in that sense? Okay, now look, actually I might mention, this reminds me of an old joke in terms of how we can tell progress, and it's along these lines, because I think like you're suggesting, maybe it doesn't just have to be an obvious change in behaviour or symptoms. And anyway, the joke goes like this, there's this fellow who's got this terrible, terrible habit. He went along to a bar, and after he'd been drinking for about an hour, he'd jump up in the bar and pull down his pants and people say that's terrible this is disgusting what are you doing and the person then suddenly realized what he'd done think oh i'm just so ashamed i'm so embarrassed look so i don't know what came over me to do that kind of thing oh my god and the people there thought look that this is just dreadful but look the guy's so mortified with it well you know i'm not going to give him a hard time it's obviously like a one-off some kind of strange reaction well anyway the fellow's there the next week. Some of the same people there. He's been drinking for about an hour. Jumps up on the bar, pulls down his pants. I thought, "This is terrible. This is disgusting." <laughs> oh. and the guy says, "Oh, look, I'm just so ashamed. or oh, this is just so dreadful." Or whatever. Look, the people think this. You can't do that. They call the police. The police come in. They're about to drag him off, and they hear what happened. I thought, "Oh, look, wait a minute. Look, this guy's obviously got some pretty severe." you know like mental problem like to do that that's well, what a bizarre thing to do so you know what's the point really of taking him to jail clearly he needs to see a mental health professional so let's let's take him along to someone so they arrange that the fellow's off for a couple of months later on there he comes he's coming back into the same bar on the same kind of evening and the other people similar people there and they think oh well good to see you back they think oh, obviously he's must be cured, here he is again, you know, fantastic kind of thing. Oh, great to hear that people can get over a problem like that. Well Anyway, they're sitting there drinking for about an hour. Guy oh, suddenly jumps on the bar, pulls down his pants, and people are saying, what are you doing? We thought you were cured. He said, I am, I feel fine about it now. <laughs> so there's that notion that, you know, sometimes therapy is about helping people be more self-accepting, but that kind of shows that maybe there are other objective things that are relevant too, so... How can we tell that therapy is going well? Well, one thing is going to be in relation to the hopes the person expresses when they come along. So they might say that, look, I want help to cut back on alcohol, or I want to feel less stressed, or I want to feel more direction in my life, or I want to improve my relationship with my husband or my children, or I want to feel less depressed. Or I want to feel more confident in a certain situation. And I think it's very important the way people frame their hopes initially. And we look to take that into account because that's what's important to the person. A therapist might think in terms of reducing symptoms being the most important. And that's no doubt relevant. But it might not be the be-all and end-all. But there are other things as well. Sometimes people are making progress and they're not necessarily... At least initially feeling much less depressed or less anxious, actually even talking about difficulties can lead people to temporarily feeling more distress. For example, if people are talking about past trauma that they've not talked about, typically people's anxiety will go up a little bit in the second or third session, for example, because it's a little bit like opening Pandora's box. It's a little bit like opening a can of worms. And so it's not necessarily a bad sign that people feel a little bit extra distress at first. But apart from reducing symptoms, so for example someone might be sleeping better or they can concentrate better or they have more energy or they're feeling less anxious in a certain situation, now that would be a sign of progress for many. But it also might be that the person does feel a greater sense of encouragement about the way they're facing their difficulties, or the person might feel they have more understanding of what they're dealing with with a personality problem or a relationship issue, or the person might feel more self-accepting, hopefully not still doing antisocial things, but the person might feel more self-accepting in a certain way that helps make further progress. So there are different ways of gauging progress, not just in terms of, say, symptom reduction, that's usually relevant because usually people present with distress that they'd like less of but I think one of the main things is there are other ways that people can feel they're making progress in shifting habits or behaviours or gaining understanding feeling more direction more acceptance and getting on with other people better getting positive feedback from other people how they're going there are a range of ways of gauging progress
0: it's interesting hearing you use the term symptom reduction because it's not necessarily something that I suppose we associate with mental health really is the idea of symptoms, for example, as much as we would physical health. So to what degree do people usually have an understanding of that? Because, for example, I think if you go to a doctor, you might go to a doctor and you say to the doctor, oh, I've got a really sore foot. And the doctor might say, oh, you've got plantar fasciitis. And you say, oh, no no I've got no idea what that is I've just got a sore foot (laughs) so to what degree do people have a clear idea of exactly what they want when coming in
1: okay well look there are a couple of things in terms of what people want and also how much people emphasize symptoms now in terms of what people want often people aren't so very clear at first when we say ask them and it's nearly always our first question what do you hope to gain from seeing me And often people will pause a bit then or or not be quite so clear or describe something in a very general or vague way. But by the same token, usually people do have some kind of response to that question. And it might be in terms of wanting to feel more confident or less stressed or help a relationship problem or that they're struggling with work demands or that they have a very difficult family issue that's come up or a conflict they don't know how to address – So people will often have some kind of idea that gets more clarified as time goes on. But in terms of, for example, symptomatic distress... Yes people often won't come in and say oh look I've got a problem with anxiety or depression but a number of people do as well. Like a number of people say look I'm having panic attacks so it's a problem with anxiety or people might say I've been feeling very low for a long time or I think I've been somewhat depressed. People might even use the word depressed or otherwise describe low mood and symptoms that go with it. But what often happens when we see people with a certain level of distress. Most of the people we'd see in a private practice setting is we'd describe that there are two main dimensions of distress, anxiety and depression. So anxiety around a sense of threat, depression, sense of low mood, maybe a feeling of helplessness. So generally every person we see for therapy, we would get some gauge of their level of anxiety and level of depression because that gives a bit of a, a measure of how much Distress they're experiencing in those main dimensions of emotional distress. So, the person might particularly have a problem with trauma or a relationship problem or with anger or with pain, but by the same token, there'll typically be an additional level of anxiety or depression. So, for example, most people that we see on the first occasion will have somewhere between a mild to moderate level of anxiety and depression. And so, we look to measure that is one of the things for helping gauge change. You talked about how do we tell if we're making progress. I think it also helps if a therapist uses some reliable or objective way of gauging change. And one thing might be symptomatic change like anxiety or depression. But it also could be worthwhile to measure positive well-being. So we do that, for example, by measuring also positive emotions that people have felt in the past week. Or also people's satisfaction with life. In one minute, people can answer a few questions about how satisfied they feel about their life. And so it gives you a sense whether the structure of the person's life is going okay broadly, things in work relationships going well enough for people to be reasonably happy, or whether people are relatively miserable at that level. So there are different ways that you can gauge that. We can separately have ways of objectively gauging also trauma symptoms, like the extent to which people have intrusive thoughts with post-traumatic stress or the extent to which they look to block out thoughts, or their ways of also gauging more objectively someone's problems with an eating disorder. But when it boils down to it, there's going to be a combination of the person's sense of what they hope to work on, and this is worked out collaboratively with a therapist, but often there are things that you can describe or define that go along with that, such as dimensions of distress or positive well-being, like positive emotions and satisfaction with life. And I think that when therapists use some gauge of that, some objective gauge of that, then you can see objectively whether progress is being made. And so how long can we expect before we start seeing progress? Look, as a general rule of thumb, you look for some change to be happening within about five sessions. So the first few sessions are often assessment, getting to know each other and finding some kind of direction, starting implementing therapy techniques. But about 50% of people are going to show some demonstrable reduction in distress within that five sessions. If that doesn't happen... And there'll be many situations where it doesn't and it still might be in a worthwhile direction, but then it's good if there's some kind of open discussion between the therapist and the client about what kind of obstacles there might be to progress. Is it maybe worth using some kind of different approach or something else kind of required? So you look for some progress early. As I say, on average, we see people for about eight sessions of therapy, so you are looking for some sign of early change. But the other thing is, if that's not happening looking to be clearer on what might be standing in the way of further progress I remember
0: being in primary school and I remember actually having the conversation with you about whether or not your job involved listening to people lying down on a couch all day long so I think certainly back in the day the perception of what a psychologist did maybe wasn't as accurate as it is now but what can people expect in a therapy setting i suppose it's the Holly, very hollywood notion almost the woody allen style lying on a couch and neurotically going through everything but these days we spoke about cbt and that sort of thing but i suppose just more practically what can people expect
1: Okay, yes, that was in an era of therapy where often people might see a therapist for years and I remember Freud suggested to people, Sigmund Freud, that while they're going through a psychotherapy that they not make some major changes in their life like change where they live or major change of career or something like that. Well, that's all good and well but many people he saw, he saw for about 10 years. Now we'd consider that's a long time to go without looking to make any major change. so things shift with culture and fashion and direction, but what we could anticipate these days is if you do see a therapist, it's good to get some sense of the structure of therapy fairly early on. By structure of therapy, I mean roughly what might be the timing of sessions, roughly how often. There'll often be maybe a few sessions about a week apart for assessment and get some direction going. Then it might extend more to fortnightly and stretch out beyond that. Many people will be seen for roughly about 10 sessions or so, but it can vary according to the kind of difficulty. can get a bit of an idea of how the therapist can progress in a certain kind of way you get an idea pretty quickly about the therapist's particular style of approach what kind of techniques that they might use you can anticipate getting an idea from the therapist what kind of rationale they would have for the different therapy that they would offer and I think that these days you could look for there to be something like a two-way relationship the therapist is likely to be professional in their demeanour I think these days you'd look for say a bit of their humanity coming through too not like say an over authoritarian approach would generally be uh, the situation so even though the therapist might have some specialized knowledge it's still likely to be drawing on the person's ideas or views on things to a certain degree but you're also looking for the therapist to have some extra knowledge or understanding beyond what you might get from a thoughtful friend or a kindly relative or a next door neighbour for example, you are looking for something more than the support, certainly some knowledge or understanding or direction or practical approach beyond the assistance you might get from people in your usual social network. And
0: so how do you suggest then that people get the most out of therapy as a client? Because there's that notion that if you go along to an accountant, essentially you have to know the right questions to ask in order to be able to get the most out of that service. So with a psychologist,
1: how are you able to get the most out of it? Well, I think the main thing is the more clear you are on what you want to get out of the therapy, the more that's going to help guide it in a worthwhile direction. So one of the first things is looking at what do you hope will change? You know, how, how would things look? How would they seem different if the therapy was successful, so to speak, or you got what you wanted from it? Because that will then help you frame what you ask for from the therapist. And as I say, we start off asking people virtually every time, what are your hopes from therapy? Or what are your hopes from seeing me? And the more clear that people can be on that question, then the more it provides direction and channels the motivation for change it also helps gauge or measure whether things are going in the direction that would suit the person so looking to be as clear as you can on your hopes and that might keep on developing over time but then it comes back to your readiness as well so think of your motivation for changing what what are some of the good things about changing but also maybe be a little bit honest with yourself too about what are some reasons for not changing changing is difficult it takes effort There might be some expense involved, there's some time involved, you know, going out of your way to find someone. So, for example, think of what are the things that you might get out of this and are there some things that might be a downside to seeking this change? And when you realise that, yes, I am ready for this, I'm ready to see someone and I'm a bit clear on what I'm on about, then that increases the chances that the therapist that you see, you will be able to form a good therapy relationship with them to take it forward. And the more clear you are on those things as well, if you're not finding it working out with that therapist and you feel it's not working forward so much and you feel that you've already done a fair bit that you can to prepare yourself, then that might be more of a hint that it could be worth considering seeing a different therapist.
0: And so then do you have any tips about, I suppose, expediting that process? Because... Particularly, for example, if you're depressed and you're, for example, feeling quite numb and overwhelmed, it can be very hard to distill down the particulars in terms of what emotions are eliciting what feelings in certain ways. So do you have any tips for people to gain any more clarity about that?
1: I think one thing is when you've found who might well be a suitable therapist to give it a bit of a go, like it certainly helps to give it a number of sessions for example because the first sessions might be on assessment, the therapist might be looking to get more of a gauge of how they can best help you so I think that often you can't tell so much in it. maybe a first session or first couple of sessions, sometimes it might be obvious that there's a mismatch, there's something that really stands out, that'll be more rare that that's the case but that could happen. But usually it's going to be best to give it a bit of a go, give it a number of sessions. And if you feel you're not getting either the clarity or direction that you'd be looking for or you're not feeling so encouraged or clear about how things might improve, there is an advantage to be able to bring that up with that therapist and see how they respond to that. Most therapists will be open to that. Most will even welcome that and think, well, look, this actually helps have a more honest Conversation in our collaboration of what way to go. But if you feel that you've maybe put in a certain effort, maybe brought things up like that, and feel that the therapist is not so responding to that or it's not getting anywhere so far or whatever, then you do have some options. One of them is to discuss with your GP as well and go back to that starting point where your GP can refer you to others as well and maybe say some things about how it's maybe not going so well. Or if a person works in a group practice, You can perhaps contact that practice and look to speak to a practice manager or someone else there about that issue. It is ideal to bring it up with a therapist first because then they might have a way of adapting their approach that suits you further. That will often happen, actually. But if you feel you're not getting so far that way, sometimes you can talk to someone at the practice as well to see if there's an alternative there. Or otherwise, again, going by word of mouth and considering... A shift in another way but look to bring it up with a clinician if you feel there's something not working out so well but then be prepared to bring it up with someone else if you feel that you're putting in what effort that you can and you feel that there's not that progress being made then sometimes it might be a mismatch that will be less often than more often
0: and so then is it the case that you do sometimes i suppose see a change from one session to the other because I remember a time that I actually went and saw a psychologist at the university I went to not long after my close friend at uni passed away and it was basically the case where I really felt that that person was basically just repeating back to me the things that I was saying to them so you know I'd sort of say I'm feeling rubbish about this I'm feeling rubbish about that then sort of say it sounds like you're struggling with this or it sounds like you're struggling with that a bit. So, yeah, like no shit, sure. Like, I've literally just told you that. And, you know, I was in a position where, you know, my best friend had just passed away. So, where my head was at was, you know, bordering on the immaterial realm in many ways. So, I wanted something with a bit more substance than just, oh, you know, you, that sounds like it would be terrible. So, is it the case that? Potentially what seems like a mismatch at first can actually turn out not to be as much of a mismatch because I know for me that was a situation where I was just, I simply went you're "You're not the person for me, sorry, I'm not your guy,
1: let's both go our separate ways sort of thing. Yes, well what you're describing that situation does sound like a bit of a mismatch in that um, what you do hope that a therapy experience can bring is another element comes into the situation another way of looking at another way of experiencing it and it seems to me that what you could have done more with at that stage is something coming into the conversation which is something extra beyond what you had at the time so and I think after situations that are traumatic often that's the case that say non-directively reflecting something back to the person will often not be enough to make the significant change but there are situations where someone could have some underlying conflict or distress and at first they might feel that they're not getting so much direction from a therapist if you like but there might be a way that they feel they're working through things a little bit more tapping into certain feelings more some therapists might even discuss their dreams with them more other kind of experiences coming up in a way that starts to break new ground and you might feel that you're getting a little bit more progress over time than what you felt at first. So I actually think in that situation you're describing that you were likely astute in recognising that there was something else that you could do with but yes there are a number of times where people will see a therapist and at first feel oh look it's not making as much progress as I'd like, I've already seen them a few times, I'm still feeling a bit the same. Well that might not be really long enough to be able to go to things in further depth to help bring about the change so look there's a bit of both in these kind of situations but I think one of the main things is if you feel that you're not making the progress that you would wish and especially if it's around that five session mark being prepared, if you can, to bring up with the therapist just like a question about what else the therapy might involve or maybe describe still feeling a bit stuck or maybe describing still feeling a bit unclear on what direction it might take. And that will give the therapist a cue to look to describe in a little bit more detail, to add a bit more about what else the therapy might bring. And so what's your opinion then on People
0: seeking therapy who aren't necessarily in a situation where they're experiencing prohibitive psychological difficulties because I found it very interesting during the week to see that there was an Australian guy, Paddy Steinford, who was featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated and he's a sports psychologist who's worked with AFL teams and now works in the NFL but within the field of sports psychology is a huge growth area because they've seen that as an area to really be able to improve performance because it was an area that didn't necessarily have much emphasis in the past so i suppose to take that performance element of psychology would you advise people who Don't necessarily have those prohibitive psychological difficulties but may want to seek progress in other ways. They may not necessarily be able to access the better access scheme that we've spoken about. But would you suggest that people seek therapy when they're not necessarily just depressed or anxious but may want help
1: with other things? Yes, well, this overlaps with the theme of positive psychology, so a science of well-being where positive psychology developed to look to enhance people's well-being even if they're already travelling pretty well. So this is this idea of enhancing wellbeing, even if people are going okay. So I really do think that there's a place for that. And also there are elements of psychotherapy which can overlap with that. Like a number of people that I would see, they come along at first because they might have been burnt out at work, for example. They address that and then they might bring up some kind of personality conflict in their workplace and we might talk through that. And then they might talk about some other kind of tweak in an area of their life that they're working on, so to speak. And that almost overlaps with, I suppose, life coaching. A number of people will go along and see a life coach these days to look at an accountable way of looking to improve or address a certain kind of behavior or aspect of their work or a way that they're pursuing an interest or how they're looking to get a balance in life in a certain way so that shows that as there's been a greater interest in well-being as well as less stigma from seeing a counselor of whatever sort then we see ways people look to enhance that And I might mention myself, I sought someone out that way about 10 years ago. It was actually the same person I'd seen 30 years ago for severe depression, which I mentioned on our episode about depression. But I went to see him again 20 years later, about 10 years ago, from a position of strength because I thought he was a very wise person There were certain challenging issues that I was facing in my life at the time. I was not feeling depressed, I was not feeling anxious, but I thought that he might be able to help me in terms of outlook and resourcefulness. And I think that when something helps our well-being, it can help our performance and resourcefulness and also the other way around. So it's not something that needs to be prescriptive or that we should do it, but there are therapy processes or counselling processes that can be helpful even if people don't have any kind of significant mental health problem. Well it's interesting hearing you say that and
0: look I think it comes back in many ways a little bit to what we were talking about at the start of the podcast today about the idea of stigma around seeking help and all this sort of thing because I think when we really think about it, the removal of that stigma extends beyond just seeing a therapist. And so I suppose that's one thing that I've almost taken from today's podcast as well in the sense that it's not necessarily just about going and seeing a psychologist, but it's also about looking at ways of trying to improve our mental health and being open to seeking support for that. So it's one thing to seek help from a psychologist or a mental health professional, but it's not as if we necessarily need to get to that threshold to seek support from someone. We can
1: emulate elements of that with whether it be our friends or our family in that way. Yes, I think that's a really important thing you're bringing up about social support. And one thing we know is people go best in their recovery from all sorts of difficulties, whether it's trauma or addictions or even things like schizophrenia. It partly depends on the amount and quality of social support. And so it's partly about prioritising our mental health and being open to drawing on that support. One of the main things is not becoming isolated with our difficulties. It's one thing to have mental distress. It's another thing to become isolated with it. So I think, like you're suggesting... It really helps to look to be open and let someone know if you're struggling. There's no shame in that. It's part of life to at times face situations that might seem really difficult that they really stretch our resources. So I think your emphasis on drawing on supports, not just health professionals, that's a really important thing.
0: Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today, Dad, about all this. And as I mentioned earlier, the next episode that we do, which won't be next week, but the week after next, will be on how you can help others seek help for psychological
1: problems. So thanks again, Dad. It's been good as always. Good, Rowan. And, and one thing I would like to add is most people will get better in relation to a whole range of problems that they might be facing, mental health problems. And often, even if they don't see a therapist. So we're not saying in every situation people might need to see a therapist if they're struggling, but often there'll be benefits from that. And people can benefit from all sorts of other things that help mental health, such as taking up extra physical exercise, or sometimes it might be a shift in work, or sometimes it might be a fortuitous meeting with someone, or a circumstance, a fortunate circumstance that helps turn things around. So not trying to say that in every situation where people are struggling that they should or need to see a therapist, but hopefully today's been helpful as a bit of a guide on how people might get the most out of that opportunity. So please feel free to check out the podcast page at chrismackey.com.au
0: slash podcast. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Dad, I'll see you next week. See you next week, Rowan.